Uruguay becomes the 36th country to sign the Artemis Accords. Germany is finally beginning to take the UFO issue seriously after decades of ridiculing witnesses. The sources that leaked the majestic documents have been confirmed to be CIA operatives. The Seoul Foundation is not ready to hear experiences share their story at the next event in Washington, D.C. Congresswoman Anna Luna reveals how she learned UFOs were non-human in origin. A Russian researcher exposes ancient, underground and space non-human civilizations. These and other stories on Exopolitics Today, the Week in Review. You're listening to Exopolitics Today with Dr. Michael Sala, your source for the uncensored truth regarding the human, extraterrestrial, global and political agenda. Click the like button and subscribe to this channel. And now, here's Dr. Michael Sala. Welcome to the February 24 edition of Exopolitics Today, the Week in Review. There's been um, quite a number of very interesting stories that deal with exopolitics this week, so I will try to keep them uh, brief so that we don't go over an hour like I did last week. Uh, so let's start off with this story uh, on February 17 that Uruguay becomes the 36th country to sign the Artemis Accords. So uh, Uruguay's signature is is just one more confirmation that the United States and NASA, in terms of the opinion and the leadership of uh, the uh, other countries that have space programs or are wanting to set up space programs in the future, that uh, they recognize that this is going to be this is going to be something that the US and NASA are going to dominate for the next few decades. And what's very important is that the Artemis Accords also give a framework for protecting corporations that set up space programs in these countries for them to have safe havens, not only for conducting their uh, space activities out of countries like Uruguay, uh, but also in terms of uh, in ensuring that you don't have the prying eyes of the US Congress or, more importantly, the US military uh, finding out what's going on with these corporations. Because I think that's going to be uh, the, the really big challenge in the decades ahead as we move into a spacefaring civilization where you have corporations, private entities, uh, out in space, doing all sorts of things, that uh, these corporations uh, that are going to run these programs, they, they're going to want the protection of the US military in conducting their space uh, affairs because having a space military is a very, very expensive thing. So for, from their side, they want to be able to have the protection of the US Space Command, which is setting up a kind of multinational integrated space program that's called the Combined Space Operations Initiative. They want the protection of that, and the Artemis Accords gives them that protection because the Artemis Accords has a feature in it called safety zones. So this affords any, any country that's a signatory to the Artemis Accords 
that they are fully protected, both their national space program and any corporation operating out of that nation. So in the case of Uruguay just joining the 36th, becoming the 36th country to sign the Artemis Accords, that means that a, a company like, just say, for example, a company like, um, uh, say, SAIC or Lidos, which has been involved in a lot of these very um, shady space activities, special access programs, they Lidos or SAIC may decide that, well, you know, if we set up shop in... Uruguay, we have all the advantages of uh, having the protection of space command for our, our activities in space. We we uh, also have a, a country that provides us the kind of umbrella for us, for all of our activities being protected under the Artemis Accords, but you don't have any kind of uh, the prying eyes of the US Congress uh, or of FOIA, or as we've seen more recently, attempts by the US Congress to assert eminent domain. So that means that uh, these corporations, as they move their space activities to these uh, countries that are signing onto the Artemis Accords, it means that uh, you know, not only do they get cheaper workforce and and they, they also get the benefit of not having... Uh, the US Congress uh, being able to pry into their activities and also the US military isn't able to kind of like find out what they go what's going on in there as they would be able to if those corporations uh, were solely based in the US. Okay, so here's a story uh, concerning Germany. Uh, this is a post concerning the German state broadcaster, ZDF, that just published a video where a European space agency scientist said that it was time to respect the UFO witnesses and to destigmatize the topic so that we can solve the UFO mystery. So this is a sign that finally in other countries, uh, aside from the United States, the UFO issue is finally being taken seriously by officials, uh, whether in government or whether in the space program there. And, and that's very important because uh, Germany has for decades played uh, behind the scenes a leading role in secret space programs. Uh, but publicly, uh, the, the German uh, public, uh, the German authorities and the German media ruthlessly ridiculed and stigmatized people that had information about extraterrestrial life or secret space programs. So that that is a very important development that uh, Germany is being able to take this issue seriously, which really is ironic because when we're talking about secret space programs, it was uh, Germany during the Weimar Republic that started it all that it was German scientists, German mystics that really got the ball rolling with some programs. The, the earliest program uh, was the Vril anti-gravity device that began to be developed in the 1930s. And, and later it was co-opted and weaponized by the Nazi SS. And of course, at the end of the Second World War, the most effective prototypes or the, the fully developed prototypes 
were all moved to Antarctica for the program to continue from there. But ever since that time, uh, the German media and German authorities have ridiculed any claims that uh, that there had been a secret space program developed in Nazi Germany and kind of set up shop in South America or Antarctica after the war. So here's a glimpse into catastrophic disclosures. So these are the webinar highlights. So my webinar on uh, catastrophic disclosure that was held on February 3rd. So this is the highlights of that. Uh, so these were compiled by uh, my videographer, Jazz Marlin. So thanks to Jazz for that. So you can see the highlights on, on YouTube for 30 minutes. And if you're interested, you could watch the, the full webinar either on video, on Vimeo or on Crowdcast. The Vimeo version doesn't have the, the Q&A, so uh, that might be more attractive to people. And, and we have a little, a few, you know, there's more audio enhancements and a little bit of editing to make it uh, more suitable for, for Vimeo. So here on February 19th, there was a interview on Coast to Coast AM where George Knapp interviewed a um, the author of a new biography on uh, this major Donald Kehoe. Now, Donald Kehoe is a very important figure because uh, he is probably the most well-known UFO researcher uh, from the 19, uh, well, from the 1950s. I, I can't remember exactly when he began writing, uh, but definitely in the 1950s he was very active from um, you know, 1950 or 1949, something like that. He was um, someone, because he was a major in the U.S. Marine Corps and uh, a, a former pilot, uh, Air Force pilots and Navy pilots were very comfortable talking to, to him. And so they shared a lot of their information about UFO sightings, what, what had happened. And so he became incredibly popular in mainstream media because of his background and because of uh, the information that he was getting from all of these uh, Air Force and Navy pilots. But then what happened in 1954... Uh, you had something called, called the Joint Army-Navy Air Publication 146C, and what it did was it in introduced penalties, severe penalties of 10 years imprisonment and a $10,000 fine, which back, back then in 1954 was quite a hefty fine. And what that did was that any pilot, whether civilian or military, that talked about the UFO issue uh, without official approval, could be prosecuted under JNAP. So that so that put an end uh, to all of these pilots uh, coming forward. And Kehoe, by that time, he was uh, he was someone that was very uh, analytical in terms of understanding what was behind the suppression of the UFO phenomenon, and he recognised a group of very senior officials within the military, within the national security system, and he called them the silence group. Today we would call them the deep state, the 
uh, Illuminati, the Cabal, but he called them the silence group. And so he was probably the first person to bring in this exopolitical element. And that's why I consider Major Donald Kehoe uh, one of the pioneers, if not the first person, to, to bring in an exopolitics perspective. Even though he didn't use the term exopolitics, he firmly recognised that there was a significant political aspect to the UFO phenomenon. So, you know, that made him very different to a lot of researchers, even today, who say, well, no, UFOs, you know, this is a scientific problem that we need to understand by having better uh, photographic measurements, better cameras, better telescopes and so forth. Uh, Donald Kehoe would say, no, no, that's actually not the problem at all. The problem is that there is this silence group, that they are the ones that are stopping this information from coming out because he had direct access to all these Navy pilots and uh, Air Force pilots that were very forthcoming, talking about what was it what was being seen? He had access to air traffic controllers in the military who were saying what they were uh, capturing on radar and handing over some of that data to him. So he saw how the the mood changed from a very kind of open, transparent uh, military that was wanting this information to come down. And then by 1954, the, the curtain had come down that, no, we are not going to disclose this. And, and Kehoe was the first to recognise that the UFO phenomenon was fundamentally a political national security issue, not merely a scientific issue, which you get uh, being proposed by many people that are relatively new to the phenomenon today, especially people associated with the Soul Foundation, who I'll be talking about uh, very soon in another tweet, uh, that uh, they... The, the majority of people within the Soul Foundation, they want to treat the UFO phenomenon as a purely scientific uh, issue. But in the 1950s, uh, Major Donald Kehoe said that that approach uh, wasn't enough, that this was a, a political national security issue, and so you needed to deal with, with the silence group. So here's a... Um, a story concerning um, the NASA Clipper mission to Europa, saying that uh, this is going to be uh, this is going to be leaving uh, very soon. It's a NASA mission. It'll be leaving uh, over the next uh, few months, and that it will arrive in uh, the vicinity of Jupiter and Europa in January of 2023, of 2030. So it's saying that in six years' time, uh, this mission, the Clipper mission, will send a uh, craft, a probe, to circle around uh, Europa, to orbit it, to take photographic uh, data, and for that to be analysed, and they're hoping to be able to find the signs of life um, on Jupiter's moon Europa. And so they're saying that, well, you know, by the time Europa gets there in 2030, uh, then we can hopefully get an answer to the question, is there life on Jupiter's moon Europa? I mean, so that is very interesting that this is uh, the, the way in which 
the scientists kind of frame the search for extraterrestrial life in terms of different satellites, spacecraft arriving at distant destinations that we'll be able to get an answer to that phenomenon, uh, to that question then. But of course, you don't have to wait that long because I've been talking to a number of people, in, including uh, JP, who said that in November 2022, he was taken to Europa by a group of Nordic extraterrestrials and saw a flourishing underground civilization um, in under the ice there. So, you know, this is here you have uh, my story on Exopolitics Today, where uh, JP talked about a Nordic space mission to Ganymede and Europa, where he got to see uh, these extraterrestrial bases on Ganymede and Europa. These were run by extraterrestrials. The, 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 these missions were conducted by Nordic extraterrestrials, not US Space Command. JP has been on other missions with US Space Command, and he's talked about that, uh, and I have covered that on uh, Exopolitics today and in Volume 1 of US Army Insider Missions. So, yeah, you definitely don't have to wait to 2030 to get an answer as to whether there's life on Europa. Uh, that, I think, was very clearly answered uh, by JP when he went there. And there have been others that have talked about life on Europa. Okay, so here's a story that I thought was uh, very significant. And, and this is where... Uh, some of the documents that have now been released through the National Archives, because at the beginning of this year, uh, the adoption of the uh, U UAP Records Act, which is the, the kind of like the remains of the gutting of the UAP Disclosure Act that was removed, but one of the key elements that was left behind was that uh, the US National Archives would collate all of the records from the different intelligence and military uh, organizations in the United States into one single repository. So you know, this is something that does definitely make it easier for researchers to gain access to historical UFO related reports as opposed to having to go to different agencies and and rate and kind of like lodge FOIA requests or look or try and find or dig through the whatever records that have been available on that agency website which which can vary in quality uh, but now with the national archives uh, having the mandate to have an archivist uh, collate all of the UAP records that definitely makes it easier for th these records to be uh, readily accessible to researchers. So what some researchers have found is that three people that were involved in the uh, dissemination of the majestic documents that came out in the 19, uh, I think it was 1984 was the first one, and then later in the 1990s, that there were three people that were behind these uh, majestic documents 
that uh, Dr. Robert Wood and Ryan Wood referred to on the Majestic Documents website. And, and so you have Thomas Cantwell, you have Selena, and you have Source S1. Well, these have been confirmed through the new uh, UAP records that have been released uh, through the National Archives to have been uh, former CIA operatives. And so that actually makes a lot of sense that people who were leaking these official documents, which the majority of which were drafts because the, the way in which um, documents get classified often is, is that uh, the, the final product receives a very high classification, uh, but earlier drafts of that might have a, a lesser classification. Uh, because clearly they're, they're drafts, they haven't been adopted, there might have been some changes to those. So so these were uh, documents that came into the possession of these operatives and they worked with or they were familiar with the records that were accumulated by James Jesus Angleton, who was the person in charge of the CIA's counterintelligence division from uh, the mid-1950s right up until he was sacked or forcibly removed or asked to resign uh, by uh, William Colby. I, I believe that was uh, yeah, mid-1970s, 74, 75, that uh, he, he was forced to leave and he was ordered to destroy all of his CIA records. Uh, so people that were sent in to destroy the records and one of the ways in which the CIA operatives destroyed records was to burn them, uh, that some of the people involved in that process decided that some of these documents were too important to burn and so they retrieved them, they kept them and that more than a decade after Angleton's death, uh, these began to be leaked. So these were CIA operatives. Now, some might say, well, if these were CIA operatives leaking this information, how do you know that the documents weren't contrived, weren't bogus? Uh, well, you, you know, that's a possibility. Uh, you, we need to consider that. But on the other hand, this can also be taken to be corroboration that these documents were authentic because they did come from CIA operatives. So you, you could uh, definitely... Uh, make the argument uh, both ways. Okay, so here's uh, a update uh, from a long nation's news for February 19, and uh, it uh, it delivers a lot of information by several of the contacts that Elena has with the Galactic Federation of Worlds and also with Ia, um, uh, uh, or also Enki, uh, one of the Anunnaki leaders. So Elena talks about what was discovered in the moon or that the Galactic Federation went there and found that uh, there was uh, something within the moon signifying a higher intelligence associated with the moon. And so that's very fascinating because it, to me, when I heard this, it it 
reminded me of the movie Moonfall, where you actually had this ancient technology in the moon that was kind of sentient and it was playing a critical role in monitoring the Earth and helping the Earth achieve a certain balance or preventing the moon from causing any problems on Earth. So uh, Elena discussed this. And uh, so she's saying that the, that the moon has an intelligence in it, an organic intelligence, and it has uh, a core purpose and, found, and uh, functions. So she described that as well as the, some of the duties of senior officers in the Galactic Federation of Worlds. So that to me is uh, well worth watching uh, because you you are going to get, I, I think, probably the, the most credible source on how galactic civilizations operate. I mean, there are many sources out there talking about multiple extraterrestrial civilizations and, and how they operate. Uh, but as, as far as I can tell, uh, Elena Denan, Jean-Charles Moyen, uh, JP, uh, Alex Collier, these are some of the more credible sources in, in my view. And you know, they have, in some cases, decades of experience, uh, but they also have a lot of evidence uh, supporting their claims. You, you have photographic evidence, you, you have a corroborating witness evidence, you have circumstantial supporting evidence, uh, which which is important in terms of corroborating this information. And, and I distinguish uh, this approach from those who are putting out information about extraterrestrial life, but making no effort to corroborate any of it. They're just putting out stories and and, and until you make an effort to corroborate your information, then I have to consider that you know that that is kind of like storytelling or uncorroborated. But in the case of uh, these individuals that are that I mentioned, uh, there there is supporting evidence that I think makes their reports well worth investigating. So definitely take a look at. Uh, the last Star Nations news update from February 19. Here is something that I wanted to draw attention to. And, and this is a, a tweet concerning the, a, a mention of the Interplanetary Phenomenon Unit uh, that was supposedly outed, well, it, it was outed by the Citizens Against UFO Secrecy that submitted FOIA requests. And uh, these were FOIA requests that were submitted to the Air Force Office of Special Investigations and also to the uh, US Army. And what, what was discovered was that uh, there was something called the Interplanetary Phenomenon Unit. And this is very important because there had been uh, many witnesses that talked about the Interplanetary Phenomenon Unit as being involved in some of the earliest crashed UFO investigations. And that was set up by US Army intelligence and that General MacArthur during World War II actually played a role in the setting up of the Interplanetary Phenomenon Unit. And in the 1950s, General MacArthur gave a couple of speeches where he talked about uh, the next enemy that the United States would have to do, deal with would be an extraterrestrial threat that would unify the planet. 
And so, yeah, the interplanetary phenomenon unit has has been rumored to exist uh, for, for for several decades. And then in uh, the late 1970s, uh, it actually says here that an unofficial source in 1979 tipped off um, Larry Bryant and attorney Peter Gersten uh, about the existence of the interplanetary phenomenon unit. Now, in 1979, that person, that unofficial source, was uh, Clifford Stone. Uh, he served for 22 years in the U.S. Army. He served on crash retrieval operations for Project uh, for Project Bluefly and uh, Moondust, and so he was familiar with uh, the interplanetary phenomenon unit. And so he was the unofficial source. He actually told me that I, I did get to speak with Clifford Stone, and I did ask him about uh, how did the how did it become known that the interplanetary phenomenon unit was discovered and he said he was the source that tipped off peter gersten and larry bryant that there was an interplanetary phenomenon unit and so he he gave them information on where to direct the FOIA requests and so that's what happened and in 1979 clifford stone uh, was halfway through his us army service so he was he wanted to remain an unofficial source and that's so you know nothing wrong with bryant and Gersten not naming him at that time because uh, he would have gotten into a lot of trouble. I mean, he did get into a lot of trouble in any case uh, during his army career because uh, he was, uh, in in a way, Clifford Stone parallels uh, uh, JP, the US Army insider that I've been working with since uh, 2008 uh, because he had an official duty uh, in the army, and he also had unofficial duties, or he was—he uh, had these covert duties that he would be called away on TDY to perform. So JP is is doing a similar thing uh, currently for the U.S. Army, and and he remains anonymous uh, because he would not only would he get into trouble, but also uh, the army unit that is encouraging him or supporting him in putting this information out would get into trouble. So Clifford Stone played that role in the late 1970s, but Clifford Stone retired in 1991. And, and what I have noticed is that after he retired and after he came out saying that he was involved in these crash retrieval programs, UFO researchers uh, dumped him like a hot brick. I mean, they just, they didn't want to have anything to do with him, which is, which kind of I've noticed is a pattern with UFO researchers that if if a person just claims to be a UFO researcher that has dug up information relevant to what is really happening with UFOs, then UFO researchers will communicate and work with them. But when a person says that, you know, I was involved in these programs, I was a member of these crash retrieval teams that I actually went inside of the spacecraft and I saw the dead or the, the living alien bodies and I was there trying to uh, resuscitate them or perform whatever functions I was asked to do with them. UFO researchers kind of turn around and run away. I mean, I mean there, there are a few exceptions to that. Uh, Leonard Stringfield was uh, one of the exceptions to that. Uh, he was 
a researcher that began to talk about UFO crash retrieval operations um, in the 1980s and 1990s. Uh, but other than him, most UFO researchers uh, would not give the time of day to experiences. And that prejudice, unfortunately, continues to exist, as I will very soon talk about. Okay, so here, and this is exactly what I wanted to, to say, that this is where we get uh, this situation concerning how the UFO research community deals with experiences. So what I'm going to do now is... Uh, uh, show you a short video clip where Whitley Stryber talks about the Soul Foundation and its attitude towards experiences like him. So play that jazz. I think I'm satisfied with where it is. Yeah, I'll say that to begin. Okay. Um, it, I was not allowed to ask to speak at the Soul Foundation. And so I asked questions instead to, to make the presence of the experiencers known. And I know Gary Nolan pretty well. We're we're friends. I consider him a friend, a good friend, in fact. And um, we talked about it. And he said, the problem is that there were a lot of people at that conference who simply wouldn't be comfortable listening to the, an experience or talk because they are not ready to deal with the idea that there might be somebody coming out of these things. And I you know, understand that. And we have to take it step by step. The next conference is going to be in Washington. And once again, I don't think experiencers will be involved. And if experiencers are involved, I'm thinking that it might be someone soft first. Because there are people with softer experiences than I've had. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm the kind of guy who, okay, you so know, I'm like a roach. I mean, you so there you have Whitley Stryber talking about the Soul Foundation, which has really presented itself as the premier institution for studying the UFO phenomenon using established scientists from the natural sciences and from uh, some of the social sciences, but, but predominantly it's the natural sciences. And what they're saying is that experiences... Uh, this is uh, not something that they're ready to hear, that this will be uh, that their second symposium or meeting that's going to take place in Washington, D.C., uh, is not likely to have any experiences like Whitley Stryber, who has, of course, he's a world-famous uh, author who's well-known for talking about his abductions by these enigmatic greys that, uh, I mean, he says it straight out. He says he was raped and subjected to horrible experiences. And so uh, that the Soul Foundation scientists, uh, they're not ready to look at that seriously, that uh, they they want to still stick to this kind of like empirical uh, scientific method where uh, they want to refer to data, scientific data uh, about the UFO phenomenon to just prove that this phenomenon is real, that it is uh, worth rigorous scientific study and the attention of the academic and the scientific community. And, you know, I can understand where they're coming from because, frankly, a lot of the academic community does have their head in the sand and they really have a lot of difficulty taking this issue seriously. 
So I understand why the Soul Foundation wants to pitch their symposia, their white papers, their experts as as being scientists, uh, you know, hard scientists first, and rather than being kind of soft scientists looking at uh, experiences. I mean, they do have one uh, scientist, uh, Dr. Diane Pasulkas from North Carolina, from one of the universities there, but I don't uh, believe that they have really done much more than just have her and she's you know she i think she uh she's written a, a couple of books and she's talked about some of the experiences but you know what i've found from uh the information diane pasulkas has put out as well as whitley striber is that they tend to focus on abductees they tend to focus on people who have had these traumatic experiences now why do they do that i i suspect there's this kind of like bias uh, that that comes from uh, contactees having these incredible experiences that go back to the 1950s with Georgia Damsky, Howard Menger, Orfeo Angelucci, uh, George Van Tassel about the the Space Brothers and and how these were benign, benevolent beings here to help us move into more spiritual, more enlightened age, um, and then in the in the nineteen sixties and seventies, you had the the more of the stories of the abductions coming up, and and what what happened was that there were people like Whitley Strieber, uh, and and of course Dr. David Jacobs, and Bud Hopkins, who focused on these abductions and and really got a lot of success, and they became best selling authors. And Dr. Jacobs, in, in particular, uh, really did make it something that was academically respectable because he did focus on accumulating a lot of scientific data in terms of uh, surveys and uh, medical reports, psychiatric reports, therapist reports. So, you know, there was a kind of veneer of scientific analysis of the abductee support, uh, abductee literature, because a lot of the abductees suffered uh, traumatic memories and they had to go to a psychiatrist. They had to have hypnotic regression used on them. You had people like uh, Professor John Mack from Harvard University using uh, hypnotic regression to get those memories. So researchers jumped on that because they saw, well, you know, uh, Dr. J, uh, David Jacobs, Temple University, Dr. or Professor uh, John Mack, Harvard University, and uh, these other, there was a kind of a veneer of academic respectability that were attached to these cases. So they they considered this to be uh, more scientific than the abduct than the contactee reports saying, well, you know, I went on the craft and there was these really hot, you know, um, Nordics on the craft and boy was I amazed by them and fell in love or, you know, that they took me off to Saturn and we had an incredible experience there and they talked about the the space philosophy of the, the brothers and reaching heightened spiritual consciousness, that um, these were regarded as anecdotal and therefore not regarded as scientifically feasible. But Anecdotal. I mean, anecdotal. If you look at what does anecdotal means, it means well, you're hearing from people just telling stories, secondhand stories. But the contactees were not just an, you know giving anecdotal stories. They were eyewitnesses to these spacecraft 
landing. And in some cases, they were able to take photographs to support uh, their experiences. And so this is where you've had a, a, a kind of a, a dishonesty, to my mind, as far as the academic community is concerned and what we're seeing with the Soul Foundation, that experiencer reports are not taken seriously, that they're considered to be anecdotal. But no, these are eyewitness reports concerning a cover-up at the highest level of the U.S. national security system that if we go back to Major Donald Kehoe. He talked about the silence group. He talked about in the 1950s there was a silence group covering this up. And this information uh, was not only covered up, but there was a psychological operation attached to it, which was to discredit and ridicule contactee reports. And then uh, by the 19, late 60s, 1970s, you had the abduction reports. And, and so then it shifted to them because by the 1970s, a lot of the con contactees had been thoroughly discredited and, and ridiculed. So uh, overall, the Soul Foundation, uh, I understand why they are doing what they're doing. They're pitching it as uh, towards a, a sceptical academic uh, community. But after, after seven decades of contactee experiencer reports, I think they deserve a fair hearing. I think that they deserve to be heard. And I do not agree with the Soul Foundation's approach of removing experiencer testimonies from their next meeting coming up sometime in 2024. So Anna Luna, uh, she is the a House representative uh, from the state of Florida in the US Congress. And she describes how she participated in briefings, uh, national security briefings, where she learned that UFOs are of non-human origin. And that's based on the classified info that she received. Now, the important thing here is that she was told that uh, the origin of the UFOs some of them are non-human. But that doesn't mean that they're extraterrestrial. In fact, she tends to support uh, what many UFO researchers are proposing based on uh, some of the testimonies or some of the whistleblower reports coming from people like David Grush, that these are not necessarily extraterrestrial in origin, that these could well be uh, interdimensional, all coming from inside of the Earth. So we're talking the crypto-terrestrial hypothesis. And, and, and I think uh, that that is a very plausible explanation. In, in fact, I, uh, I will very shortly present that, in, in fact, that a lot of UFO sightings are not extraterrestrial at all. They are non-human and that they come from inner Earth civilizations which in a way is also synonymous with them being interdimensional because some of these, or actually many of these inner earth civilizations actually alt, um, occupy a different dimension. That as you go deeper and deeper into the earth, uh, there is a shift in the vibrational frequency that the earth, I, I believe, actually as you go deeper into the earth, uh, it, you go higher and higher in density, in consciousness. So 
some of the inner earth civilizations say let's just say for example shambhala everyone knows or has heard of shambhala that that operates in the inner earth but at a fifth density uh in the inner earth close closer to the core of the earth according to the information that's come through in this book series authored by radu cinema one of his books is titled uh, Inside the Earth, and he describes the process whereby the inner Earth is layered in terms of these uh, different dimensions. So the surface of the planet is a third density, and we all know what third density is. But as you go deeper and deeper into the Earth, you get fourth density. Uh, you, you have this kind of etheric fourth density, and as you go deeper and deeper, you get to the fifth density and so forth. So in other words some of the advanced spacecraft that come from the inner earth appear on the surface as uh as kind of like what what looked to us to be three-dimensional and some of those have crashed some of those have crashed so the, so this is where you actually have the origin of some of the crashed spacecraft are not from uh an a extraterrestrial civilization but from the inner earth from a higher dimension. So, so that's an aspect, but that doesn't mean that you can't also have extra dimension, uh, extraterrestrial from other planets, such as Zeta Reticulum or the Pleiades or whatever. So uh, I, I think we cannot exclude any particular source that they come from all of these. Now, one of the things that Anna Luna described was how when she was and other members of Congress went to um, a U.S. Air Force base in, uh, that's Eglin Air Force Base in Florida, that she and other members of Congress, uh, when they were being briefed by the head of Eglin Air Force Base, the, the commander, that there were these men in black that were there to intimidate, to silence. And in fact, that the commander of England Air Force Base at some point decided that he would just go on leave. So, I mean, that's extraordinary that the commander of an Air Force Base, while members of Congress are visiting and asking for answers to questions, suddenly decides, oh, uh, you know, I'm I have a leave of quite a, quite a lot of leave, and I'm just going to go on leave right now. And you can talk to my subordinate, who knows absolutely nothing about these issues, and will not be able to tell you anything. But I got to leave because uh, uh, <laughs> because he was intimidated by the men in black. And so this is the role that the men in black play: that not only do they inti they intimidate everyone, you know, whether we're talking about witnesses or whether we're talking about military commanders who know of the men in black, know of their reputations, and so they are intimidated. And, and this has happened to uh, JP, uh, the US Army insider that I've been working with for uh, 16 years now. Uh, he's said that, yeah, men in black have shattered him, intimidated him, tried to get him to shut up uh, because uh, he, they know that he's talking to me and his information is getting out. But the military white hats that he works with are asking him to reveal this information so it, it is a challenging thing and he has been targeted he's been subjected to two assassination attempts so when 
uh, representative Analuna says that the uh, that the commander, I think he's a brigadier general uh, of um, Eglin Air Force Base, suddenly decided to take leave. Uh, he knew, he knows that uh, the men in black that uh, they can come after you or your family. So he took himself out of the picture, and uh, the members of Congress that were there trying to find out about uh, UFO-related uh, programs didn't get very far at all. But uh, she confirmed that uh, the men in black phenomenon is very real and that UFOs, some of them, are non-human in origin. So uh, thanks to Anna Luna for confirming that. Okay, so here's a video that JP has released. This is... Uh, where JP is going to be releasing more videos, more photos uh, through uh, his, he's created a YouTube channel and an Instagram account. And you can go to this video uh, on my Twitter feed to find his um, Twitter account or YouTube uh, channel. And so he's going to be releasing more and more videos where in addition to revealing information through the interviews that we do regularly on his updates and that I release eventually in written form in the books, that he, in addition, he's going to do more videos and use his Instagram and YouTube channels to give you more clues as to what's going on without identifying people. Uh, so we, we uh, JP and I, uh, think that this will be a good way for him to interact directly with the public in revealing things that he finds to be very helpful clues as to current operations happening around the planet. So uh, you can watch that video. It goes for three minutes on his YouTube channel. And let me just give you that YouTube channel because I know people will ask. Uh, so that YouTube channel is called uh, at JPJPJP1. Okay, there you go. Uh, maybe we need to rename that. But for the moment, just go to JPJPJP1. So three JPs followed by one, and that will take you to his YouTube channel. Okay, so that is uh, JP's update. Now, I talk about this interview I did with Dr. Anton Anfalov, who is a Russian researcher who has spoken with hundreds of Russian insiders, uh, military personnel, talking about uh, UFO crashes in Russia. And we've done, this is our fourth interview together, and in previous interviews, he's talked about uh, crashes involving an in underground insectoid civilization that has been on Earth for millions of years that actually predates the human presence. So in this interview, the, in this fourth interview we've done, he describes these insectoids that are the oldest civilization on the Earth that they live in these inner Earth caverns. And he also, also talks about reptilian beings who who are not as old or haven't been present on the earth as long as the insectoids but also are present on the earth and they also predate the human presence 
So this is very important because what it tells us is that Earth has been a laboratory not just for different human genetic experiments on the surface of the planet that have been conducted for millions of years, that the oldest experiments, the first experiments, are actually involved insectoid races flourishing on the surface of the planet, but that at some point those insectoid races on the surface of the planet were wiped out and the remnants went into the inner earth to establish civilizations there. And then you had the same thing repeating with reptilians, uh, then the dinosaurs, uh, you know, that reptilian culture was wiped out and that then you had the human presence. So he talks about uh, the, these ancient underground civilizations that involve different beings, uh, insectoid, reptilians, and humans. And he describes this as a, a, a kind of a, a symbiote underground and space terrestrial non-human civilization. So these insectoids, reptilians that have these ancient civilizations under the earth that are independent of extraterrestrial civilizations that uh, they form this kind of what he describes as this uh, symbiote underground space terrestrial non-human civilization, quite, quite a mouthful. Uh, now, the interesting thing about his take on these underground civilizations is that they achieved space travel millions of years ago and that they established colonies on the moon, on Mars, on the outer planets, and that in, in his view that these relics that are being found on the moon and Mars and uh, the, the moons of Jupiter and so forth don't come from extraterrestrial civilizations. They come from this underground ancient network of civilizations that are non-human from the Earth, that they were the first spacefarers and they established a presence on the outer planets and so forth. Well, uh, I... I don't agree with him on that. I think that there is a lot of evidence supporting the idea or supporting that extraterrestrial civilizations have come into our solar system for millennia, for millions of years even, and have and have been involved in these uh, seeding experiments on Earth. And and, and I. And I think that this has been going on for a lot of time. But you know, this information is not mutually exclusive. You cannot have, uh, there's no reason why you can't have both happening at the same time. And, and, and in fact, I think that is what happened, that, that some of those ancient civilizations or relics, archaeological remains on the moon uh, actually belong to this ancient insectoid race. So, and in fact, I describe a... Uh, mission, several missions that JP has undertaken to an ancient space ark on the moon. And J JP says that this is uh, something that uh, the ant civilization has known for a long, long time, and they wanted to get information about it. So the ant people, uh, that is a non-human civilization that has extensive uh, caverns on the earth. So JP has talked about that. So I I, I agree that uh, there are these flourishing underground non-human civilizations on the earth, uh, but I, and, and 
Anton Anfalov uh, talks about these in these in this interview. So definitely worth taking a look at that, and also uh, his information that corroborates that the Germans or the Nazis did establish contact with uh, one of these civilizations and that they had help in establishing colonies in Antarctica and South America. So well worth uh, taking a look at that interview with uh, Dr. Anton Anfalov. Okay, so here we have uh, a story from NBC that says this privately built lunar lander makes history with a successful moon touchdown. So the lander, built by uh, intuitive machines, touched down on the lunar surface at around 624 um, Eastern time. Uh, and and this, the story was that, here we go, the, the first paragraph, it says that it becomes the first privately built craft to touch down on, on the moon, as well as the first American vehicle to accomplish this to accomplish the feat in more than 50, 50 years. Okay, so you know, this is this is the problem here that I mean, how many people really believe that this Odysseus, Odysseus Pro that has landed on the moon is the first American spacecraft to land on the moon in over 50 years? How many people really believe that? That in 50 years that there haven't been covert missions to the moon? I mean, if people believe that, well, um, I, I guess, you know, they can believe anything, right? Uh, because we know that there are dozens of insiders, witnesses, that, that describe secret moon missions using reverse-engineered spacecraft that are part of secret space programs. So there have been dozens of witnesses and insiders that have talked about uh, these missions or these bases on the moon uh, that have been there themselves, that have participated. You know, I've talked about JP going to the moon. Uh, another very credible witness is Niara Isley. I've talked about her, how she went to the moon and uh, she was uh, part or she was abused uh, in this uh, US Air Force program. Uh, there have been many, many witnesses to these um, moon programs. And so there really have been dozens or many, many missions to the moon. Of course, you have a lot of secret space program insiders that have talked, that have talked about this. Now I'm going to go to Jesse Michaels or Michelle's, uh, Michaels, I'm not quite sure how you pronounce that. Uh, he's re released a really insightful, well-done podcast documentary of Thomas Townsend Brown. Very enjoyable. A lot of information in there about Thomas Townsend Brown, the uh, Bifield Brown effect about electrogravitics. Uh, he, he comes out with, I, I thought, some very good insights about Bob Lazar. I think he's very correct that the role of John Lear in bringing out the Bob Lazar story and in, in introducing Bob Lazar, well, first of all, getting Bob Lazar to, to get a job at Area 51 in the first place, um, getting Bob, introducing Bob Lazar to George Knapp, 
the Las Vegas uh, television personality and how that information came, came out that Lear was a CIA operative. I mean, he was running uh, covert operations for Air America that was a CIA front for, for decades. And so uh, John Lear was a CIA operative. I mean, uh, he has not been shy about his CIA connections and his work with Air America. And uh, I think I think Bob Lazar had the right psychological profile for being part of a CIA psychological operation that would become a limited hangout. And I, I think that uh, Michelle, Jesse Michels, I think he's correct, that what the CIA wanted to do was kind of do a misdirection to get people to focus on this dead-end reverse engineering program that was happening at S4, at Area 51, that uh, this was something that was going to deflect from the real uh, special access programs trying to reverse engineer uh, captured alien technologies that were happening, that were ha happening elsewhere or, or that involved some pioneering breakthroughs such as what uh, Thomas Townsend Brown was working on. Now, Michaels pointed out something that I, I didn't know, uh, that uh, Thomas Townsend Brown was part of a Navy espionage operation that he was actually flown into occupied Nazi Germany during the World War II by in a Navy operation and that he learned about a flying saucer program that was happening in Nazi Germany. He got first-hand information about that. Now, that was important to me because that matched information I had received from a, from a Navy uh, serviceman, uh, William Tompkins, who, who was part of a Navy-run espionage program out of Naval Air Station San Diego. Thomas Townsend Brown talked about 27 Navy operatives who were flown into Nazi Germany and were regularly flown out on a six-month rotation basis to give debriefings on what they had learned about the Flying Saucer program. So it appears that Thomas Townsend Brown was part of this Navy espionage program that we know from William Tompkins was run out of a naval air station, San Diego, and was headed by a rear admiral, Rico Borta. And, and I was able to get, through the Freedom of Information Act, uh, 1,500 pages of Rico Borta's activities. So that was uh, very interesting to have that corroboration uh, that uh, Jesse Michaels got that Thomas Townsend Brown was was part of that. Now he spends a bit of time talking about the electrogravity propulsion system and the Thomas Townsend Brown effect uh, for uh, the breakthrough propulsion technologies that were part of these anti gravity programs that were being researched using Thomas Townsend Brown's information. Uh, that he had acquired from his own experiments and from uh, his espionage mission to Nazi Germany. Now, I think that 
there is a, a big gap in this documentary podcast that Jesse Mike, uh, Michaels put out, and that concerns uh, torsion field physics, that the, the Germans were not just working with electrogravitics, they were also working with torsion field physics, and that uh, uh, Winifred Otto Schumann uh, was a pioneer in both high-voltage electrostatics and also high-pressurized, highly uh, high-temperature torsion field physics. That he would he would rotate plasma in a high-temperature, highly pressurized environment and would observe and study the torsion field effects of that of rotating liquids or plasma at very high. Pre uh, uh, pressures at very high uh, uh, rotations. And so this was something that Otto W. O. Schumann was a pioneer in in the 1920s and that he was working and funded by uh, some German secret societies, the Vril uh, Society and the Thule Society. Uh, so he seemed to be unaware of that. Uh, now, because... Michaels is really trying to focus on, you know, what are the true origins of UFOs. He was looking at uh, this kind of connection between Thomas Townsend Brown and UFO research uh, that was linked to the CIA. But he really missed a big part of the answer here, and that is that well, I already talked about William Tompkins' involvement with the Navy espionage program, but William Tompkins also, after his military service with the U.S. Navy, which ran from 1942 up until 1946, and he was discharged, then he eventually ended up in 1950 at Douglas Aircraft Company, and because he was involved in these top-secret debriefings of um, top corporate aviation experts on the Nazi flying saucer program, when he went to Douglas and he was recognised for his expertise, he was fast-tracked into something called advanced design at Douglas Aircraft Company. And Douglas Aircraft Company did conduct anti-gravity studies, and there are documents of these studies, and I have some of those documents. And uh, Jesse Michaels is welcome to ask me for those documents, and I'm happy to share them with him. Uh, but the really important thing here is that uh, William Tompkins' boss at Douglas Aircraft Company, he had two bosses, but one of them was this uh, German scientist who had immigrated to the United States in the 1920s to as, as part of a joint um, uh, corporate a joint corporate project involving uh, the Goodyear company and the Zeppelin company from Germany in setting up a or creating a flying aircraft carrier, and so that's actually uh, that, that was actually that it led to the creation of a flying aircraft carrier but initially this cooperation between zeppelin and the goodyear led to the uh, to this um, flying blimp or a 
uh, sorry, actually, it was eventually it led to the creation of this flying aircraft carrier that was commissioned by the US Navy that the, the Navy asked Goodyear to build this uh, flying aircraft carrier that was, and there were two of them that were built, uh, the USS make, make the USS Macon and the USS uh, Akron, and that they were built and they were rigid dirigibles that were uh, helium filled. Uh, the idea was that these wouldn't explode like the um, uh, what what had happened earlier with one of the Zeppelin craft uh, that was hydrogen filled. So so these craft they flew for for several years until they were uh, destroyed in storms. But the important point is that the, that these were the first flying aircraft carriers. So they were aircraft carriers. Uh, the aircraft, there were aircraft that would fly alongside the uh, dirigible that would be flying itself, and then there would be a grapple, a hook that would hook onto the aircraft and then load it onto the onto the uh, USS Macon or USS uh, Akron. So the Navy in the 1930s had flying aircraft carriers, and these flying aircraft carriers were designed by uh, the Goodyear company uh, that worked with the Zeppelin company and that uh, no, Dr. Wolfgang Klemperer was the scientist involved in that project. Now, uh, in the mid-1930s, uh, with the destruction of the Akron and the Macon, uh, that project came to an end. Uh, World War II comes along. And uh, Dr. Klemper moves over to the Douglas Aircraft Company. And the Douglas Aircraft Company played a big role in uh, studying recovered alien technologies and studying uh, whatever flying saucer information was coming from Nazi Germany. And I talk about that in my book, uh, The US Navy's Secret Space Program. You can go into details into that. But what I wanted to point out was that uh, Klemperer, while he was at Douglas Aircraft Company, uh, received requests from the US Navy to design a, um, a space carrier. So the US Navy asked Klemperer, while he's working at Douglas Aircraft Company, that was conducting anti-gravity study that doc documents show this and confirm that Klemper was involved in these anti-gravity studies at Douglas and he had designed the flying aircraft company, or sorry, he had designed flying uh, aircraft carriers for the US Navy in the 1930s. So in the 19, late 1940s, uh, 1950s, he's asked by the US Navy to build or to design uh, space carriers. And then William Tompkins worked directly under Will, uh, Dr. Klemperer, uh, Wolfgang Klemperer, from, from, uh, from 1951 up until 1963. For 12 years, he worked directly under Klemperer designing spacecraft carriers for the U.S. Navy. And that's, that's the kind of backstory to the creation of the U.S. Navy, the U.S. Navy's secret space program. So I think if you're looking for 
answers to what is behind uh, the UFO phenomenon. It's not just electrogravitic research conducted by Thomas Townsend Brown uh, along with the CIA. You've got to look at the role played by the US Navy in designing and building flying, building space carriers along with the flying triangles, flying saucer craft that would be part of that of those flying saucers. So I think uh, uh, Jesse uh, Michelle's really sh should do something on William Tompkins in the future to get to the bottom of what really happened behind the scenes uh, concerning the development of these anti-gravity vehicles in the United States. Okay, so that really was the last story. So uh, you can just go to my Twitter feed, Michael Sala. Uh, sorry, you can go to uh, x.com forward slash Michael Sala to get my uh, Twitter or X feed. So all of the references are there. So don't forget to like, share uh, this video to overcome the uh, algorithms, uh, the YouTube algorithms that really kind of direct people away from this kind of uh, uh, information. So uh, thank you for watching and I look forward to doing this again with you next week. You have been listening to ExoPolitics Today with Dr. Michael Sala. Please remember to like, share, and subscribe to this channel. Join or start a conversation in the comments. Take the time to explore the vast library of best-selling books, webinars, and podcasts by Dr. Sala. Visit exopoliticstoday.com. Thank you.